Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 23rd, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, we'll be joined by Albert Young, a partner with Boys Schilner Flexner LLP, to discuss a remarkable pending U.S. Supreme Court case that asks whether a criminal defense attorney may concede at trial his client's guilt over the defendant's express objection. The Louisiana Supreme Court held that such an admission substantiates no constitutional violations, at least in this case where defendant Robert McCoy's counsel identified his client as the perpetrator of a triple homicide, despite McCoy's clearly and repeatedly stated desire to put on an alibi defense, a defense the attorney apparently considered unbelievable. Though most of the justices at oral argument in January seemed inclined to deem violated McCoy's Sixth Amendment rights to a fair trial and to counsel, the case is trickier than its stark, unusual facts might suggest because it will likely require the high court to craft a rule or a test demarcating the border between what decisions fall within a defendant's exclusive purview and which ones are rightly left to attorneys. While McCoy's situation implicating the fundamental choice whether or not to admit guilt may fit firmly within the former category, plenty of closer hypothetical scenarios were on the justices' minds at argument as they worried about green-lighting appeals where defendants differed from their attorneys over more minute details of trial strategy. Our guest, Albert Young, filed an amicus brief on behalf of the American Bar Association in support of Robert McCoy and will be with us shortly to discuss the case's many angles, but first... Let's get to our opening briefs. The pace of opinions from the country's high court picked up this week as six issued on Tuesday and Wednesday. In one, a 5-4 split along ideological lines, Neil Gorsuch for the majority wrote that victorious prisoner plaintiffs in civil rights suits must yield a higher portion of their judgments towards attorney's fees. In Class v. United States, Justice Breyer penned a six-justice majority lacking Justices Kennedy Alito and Thomas, and found that guilty pleas, by themselves at least, do not bar a criminal defendant from subsequently challenging on direct appeal the constitutionality of his statute of conviction. In a reversal of the Ninth Circuit, a unanimous court narrowly interpreted the Dodd-Frank Act and reserved its whistleblower protections to those who actually alert the Securities and Exchange Commission of suspected securities law violations rather than simply reporting such suspicions up a corporate ladder. The ruling clarified differences between the 2010 law's protections and those of 2002 Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and also underscored ideological divisions within the court on the meaning and merit of textualism. Our Ninth Circuit beat reporter Nick Sonnenberg covered the case and is here with more. Nick, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Tell me a bit about this case. Uh, it had been one out of the Ninth Circuit last year. There, the Ninth Circuit had ruled that the Dodd-Frank protections applied to whistleblowers who reported suspicions of their company's securities violations uh, only internally and not to the SEC. Um, and here, an individual, Paul Summers, did just that. He was a, a vice president at a, a data collection company of some kind. He reported up the chain regarding some, some possible securities violations, and he says he was terminated because of it. So he brings a, a Dodd-Frank suit claiming the law protects him as a, a whistleblower. But the Supreme Court 9-0 to zero says uh, that it does not. Why is that? Well, uh, the opinion was written by Justice uh, Ginsburg, and she said the legislation itself is very specific. Dodd-Frank defines a whistleblower as um, a person who provides, quote, information relating to a violation of the security laws to the SEC. 
Um, now, it's important to note before we get too far into the case that there are two different pieces of relevant legislation that address whistleblower protections. You've got Dodd-Frank, and then there's something called the Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX Act. Dodd-Frank says that if you go to the SEC and report a violation um, and you get fired or demoted at work because of that reporting, you can go straight to federal court, you can recoup double back pay, um, and there's a six-year statute of limitations. Um, someone like Somers uh, is protected by SOX, um, and SOX's anti-retaliation employment protections, though, are far less generous than Dodd-Frank. Under SOX, you've only got 180 days from your adverse employment action, whatever that is, to file a complaint with the Secretary of Labor, who then has 180 days to decide your case. Now, if the Secretary doesn't, you then can go to federal court, but you can only recoup actual damages. Mm. Ginsburg looked at all this and said the definition of whistleblower under the Dodd-Frank guidelines is very clear. You actually have to go to the government to get those protections. Um, the, deci the decision to complain or not to the government is what is going to guide whether you have anti-retaliation protection under Dodd-Frank. Mr. Summers didn't go to the government, and so the court said he didn't get the Dodd-Frank protections. It matters what uh, direction you're, you're blowing the whistle on that, it seems like. Uh, what, was this ruling one that was expected? You say the, the statute was pretty clear, um, so it maybe it seems like uh, attorneys would expect a straightforward ruling. It was a unanimous one. Um, and in terms of the, its impact, I suppose a ruling like this would encourage employees with suspicions of their company's violations to, to report to the SEC. It seems generally like a, a good thing. Are there any potential drawbacks? Well, most of the attorneys I spoke to on both sides of the issue were pretty unsurprised by the court's decision here. But there's some uh, confusion or maybe disagreement about what this means. Some attorneys are saying, well, you know, now that there's an SEC requirement, a requirement that you have to complain, um, you're going to see more complaints filed. That's a natural takeaway. Um, but the counter to that, that theory is that employees who think something is going wrong um, have to know about these, this SEC reporting requirement before they report. And one lawyer who regularly represents these whistleblowers said, you're going to have to, before you decide to tell anyone about wrongdoing, have a lawyer with a solid understanding of this new Dodd-Frank interpretation to advise you that you need to go to the SEC before you tell anyone what you think is a foul. And so he said he described the uh, president as a trap for the uninformed. Um, so I guess the annoying takeaway here is we're not quite sure how it will all play out. Sure. Um, one thing that, that also did not play out in this case was a, a showdown over the, the Chevron deference doctrine. Um, here the SEC had, uh, in some implementing re regulations, deemed whistleblower protections um, to extend to folks like Summers based on the Dodd-Frank statute. Um, and so seemingly that, that could set up you know, a full merits dispute over whether Chevron deference is still a viable doctrine, something, you know, at least a few members of the court, including its newest member, Neil Gorsuch, you know, have hinted they disagree with. Gorsuch is pretty vocally suspicious of the administrative state. Um, but that, that did not happen here, right? Correct. So, you know, as you said, the SEC had interpreted the law before a lot of litigation over it, um, to say that you know people like Mr. Summers were protected under Dodd-Frank. Um, the Second Circuit 
um, uh, you know, applying the Chevron deference uh, doctrine gave uh, weight to the SEC's own interpretation of the law. Um, and the Ninth Circuit, um, which considered this case before it came to the Supreme Court, um, found the Second Circuit's reasoning persuasive. Um, the Fifth Circuit had found otherwise. Um, but uh, Neil Gorsuch was very critical of Chevron deference and a couple of the published opinions he wrote while sitting on the circuit court bench. And so a couple of, uh, or a few court watchers thought that this might be an opportunity for him to maybe win some votes um, and, and strike down the bounds of the Chevron uh, precedent, or at least write um, strongly about it in a dissent or a concurrence. Um, but the Supreme Court really didn't tackle Chevron. Um, they focused on, you know, the legislative intent that Congress was trying to get people to report more wrongdoing to the SEC and the fact that, you know, the statute was very clear in what it required. So um, it looks like we're going to have to wait for another case to get into the weeds of Chevron. Sure. One last point on on that issue of congressional intent. This was a, a 9-0 unanimous opinion. There were of fissures exposed between the, the court's justices, and, and particularly on that question of, of to what extent the court needed to, to weigh into Congress's intent behind the statute. Um, Justice Ginsburg spent some time uh, sort of acknowledging the arguments of, of Summers, and I think the Solicitor General here too, that Congress meant these protections to, to be pretty pretty broad and, and protect folks like Summers after the 2000 and innate financial crisis, but, you know, ultimately decided the, the protections did, did not extend to him. This, this sort of inspired a, a couple of, of different separate concurrences, including one with uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas saying that there was no need to, to get that far into congressional um, in, intent and legislative documents uh, underlying statutes. Uh, tell me a bit about, about the disputes on, on that point. Right. Um, so the separate concurrences in this case were, were remarkably short. Um, the most conservative of the conservative wing of the court, as you said, Thomas Gorsuch and Alito, um, had a, a concurrence where they criticized uh, Ginsburg and the majority for citing Senate documents, Senate reports, and whatnot to understand the intent of the legislation. Um, they, uh, Thomas, who wrote the concurrence, uh, cited a former concurrence from Sotomayor, where she critiqued um, the majority for considering a, uh, a Senate report in terms of being a legitimate, accurate uh, reflection of, of what the intent of a bill was, which prompted Sotomayor, joined by Breyer, to sort of defend themselves and elaborate on why being a strict textualist, in their opinion, is, is not an honest way of interpreting the law. Um, so the concurrences really didn't get into the merits of the case, but were an opportunity for the the two schools of legal thought on the court to, um, you know, exchange a, a volley over their general philosophies. Sure. Yeah, one volley, I'm sure, of many more to come. Um, we'll leave it there for now, though. Nick Sonnenberger, Night Show Compete reporter, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. Again, thanks for having me.
the U.S. Supreme Court is currently mulling whether a defendant's constitutional rights are violated when his attorney concedes his client's guilt against the client's express wishes. In an amicus filed on behalf of the American Bar Association, Albert Young, partner with Boys Schilner Flexner LLP in Los Angeles, argues in the affirmative and further stresses that ABA ethical rules do not prevent an attorney from putting on a defense, or at least poking holes in a prosecution's case, even where, as here, the attorney believes his client's case is a very weak one. Here now is Albert Young. Albert, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. Uh, so it might be a good place to to begin with the underlying facts here. I'll, I'll lay them out quickly here. Um, so it's a, it's a grim tale, certainly. Um, it's a, a death penalty case where there were shooting deaths of three members of Robert McCoy's wife's family. He's charged with, with those killings. And at trial in, in Louisiana, he maintains his innocence, claims that he has an, an alibi proving he did not commit the crimes. But his attorney, Larry English, um, in what, what I, I believe is a pretty good faith effort to try and save McCoy's life, spare him the death penalty just to get him life in prison, uh, thinks the best move is to admit, to tell the jury that Robert McCoy did commit the killings, um, but then hopefully use sort of that goodwill in the sentencing phase and, and, and get his client a life sentence. Um, turns out that approach fails. In, in, in the end, McCoy is found guilty and then sentenced to death. Do I have all that right? Yeah, that's a great general outline. I mean, I think like, the thing that I would add is that the one factor that really makes it an interesting Supreme Court case is that throughout the representation and even at trial in front of the jury, uh, Mr. McCoy repeatedly maintained his innocence. Uh, and so all of what Mr. English did in terms of pursuing his strategic goal um, was over the expressed objections of his client. Sure. Yeah, reading through the briefing, it's really pretty remarkable hearing that at, at the trial, the, the lawyer and the client are sort of expressing pretty convergent, uh, divergent things to, to the jury. It's really, it just sounds crazy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we all know the adage that bad facts make bad law, but if you had to take up uh, the type of case to illuminate under what circumstances you can diverge from your client's stated objective, I mean, um, I think Mr. Waxman at Oral Argument did a really good job of kind of painting just a, a picture of how clearly and how repeatedly Mr. McCoy objected to admitting his guilt. And so I, I think that's a, a big linchpin in terms of distinguishing this case from some other uh, hypotheticals. Some of those we'll, we'll get to, but uh, just as a quick aside here, what I, I believe in that McCoy sought to have his counsel replaced with a, with another appointed counsel. Why was he unable to? That does seem like a pretty big conflict between client and, and attorney. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think it's 100% clear from the record. Uh, I, I'm sure if you delve through it, there could be a nugget here or there. But the two factors that seemed at play just from my reading were, were one, he actually, Mr. McCoy, already had had prior public defenders, and the prior public defenders didn't seem to do that much. They didn't file any motions, for example, even before Mr. English came on the case and parachuted in. So it's possible that the trial court judge felt, well, this is his second counsel already. Um, you know, is, it, shouldn't this be enough? Um, the other fact, and I'm not sure this should have held <laughs> the entire time, but when Mr. English first appeared, I think in March of 2010, 
he requested a continuance, which a lot of times you will do in any case, let alone a capital case. And the trial court warned that if the trial court granted a continuance, he would actually not permit Mr. English to withdraw. Um, and so that was pretty early on, um, and it would be several months um, before the actual trial occurred. But uh, it's very possible that the trial court judge just held Mr. English to that initial promise, even though a lot changed between when Mr. English first parachuted into the case and then when trial later happened. It's pretty clear that the relationship deteriorated and the trial court had some inkling that that was happening. But maybe the trial court judge felt like he needed to push things forward and he wasn't going to let a second counsel um, get off the hook. Okay, so obviously this appeal goes up the the state appellate ladder first and the Louisiana Supreme Court hears uh, McCoy's constitutional challenge but nonetheless upholds his conviction. Uh, before we get to the U.S. Supreme Court arguments and, and the, the the legal and policy arguments on both sides, I'd just briefly touch on that opinion. I know it's a pretty big one. So with broad strokes, uh, what was the Louisiana Supreme Court's reasoning for, for why this conviction uh, should be upheld? The Louisiana Supreme Court took a couple of steps uh, in order to affirm the convictions. First, the Supreme Court, uh, the Louisiana Supreme Court, reasoned that counsel only needs to comply with lawful client objectives, and then went through an analysis of basically, <laughs> basically rendering judgment on um, Mr. McCoy's claimed alibi, uh, and basically suggesting that. Um, he was asking or Mr. English would have been forced to suborn a version of perjury by putting forth the alibi. And so um, the Louisiana Supreme Court seemed to get out of some of the obvious ethical duties for Mr. English by just saying, well, counsel's never required to assist in an unlawful client objective or uh, the submission of perjury. Um, the other step that the Louisiana Supreme Court took was saying in capital cases that conceding guilt is actual is actually a reasonable strategy, and the sec and that the court does not second guess strategic and tactical choices made by trial counsel. So the second choice, the, the second step involves characterizing what Mr. English did as trial strategy as opposed to something more serious than that. And then I think the last step is viewing this all in the ineffective assistance of counsel analytic framework rather than a structural constitutional framework. And as you probably heard at the oral argument, uh, Mr. McCoy's Supreme Court counsel um, went hard at the fact that there was a real structural problem with um, what happened at Mr. McCoy's trial and that that there was a separate constitutional issue, separate and apart from an ineffective assistance of counsel analysis. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll dig a bit more deeply in, into all of that, but, but quickly before we, we, we do, you participated uh, in a brief filed here by the, the American Bar Association. Um, what is the, the ABA's interest to, to weigh in on this case? So as is our practice whenever we represent uh, amicus parties, you know, I I am a member of the ABA, but I don't speak for the ABA for any and all purposes. Um, what I can say generally is that the ABA has an interest in um, 
the consistent application of its ethical rules and also explaining the policy reasons behind its ethical rules. And um, so those were implicated in this case in part because the state of Louisiana in defending the convictions took actually a pretty aggressive position in terms of um, ethical rules. It could have said, well, we think that if you look at all of the ethical rules that are usually at play, it permitted Mr. English to do what he did. But the state of Louisiana took a slightly more aggressive position. It said, actually, all those ethical rules knit together require Mr. English to have taken uh, the course of action that he took. And so uh, given the statements about what attorney ethical obligations are in this type of circumstance, I'm guessing that the American Bar Association wanted to make sure that there was no misunderstanding about how its ethical rules work together and what it believed was the right thing to do in this case. Okay, then let's chat about that, the right thing to do in this case to to start, um, as, as any good brief does, you sort of lay out a theme, a, a unifying idea, um, and it's it's that attorneys sort of above all else serve their clients, they represent and serve their clients' interests, and, and so therefore, um, when it comes to very fundamental objectives of, of litigation, um, they must defer to their clients' wishes on those on those very essential fundamental goals. Um, could you uh, elaborate a bit on that? Sure. I think the overall framework that we took in the brief was twofold. First was a strong affirmation that the nature of the attorney-client relationship is one of assistance. Um, you heard a lot in not just our brief, but in a lot of other briefs and at the oral argument about this idea that the client is the master of a personalized defense, especially in a criminal case, and that counsel's role, while it can be robust and sometimes while it can be contentious, is to assist in the client's personalized defense um, and that the client is the master of the main objectives of that defense. So reminding, uh, reminding the court that that is the nature of the fundamental relationship. The second thing is, well, within that relationship, what is the right balance to strike in terms of each party's duties and obligations? And of course, the trickiest thing in this case, which is teed up by the point that I raised when we were talking about what additional facts are there, is what is the right balance between attorney discretion in terms of litigation tactics versus client control over litigation objectives. And so that can be at times a, a tricky balance. Um, but part of what we argue in our amicus brief is if you view that as a spectrum where there are different points along the spectrum from litigation objectives on one hand and then litigation tactics on the other end of the spectrum, that the unique facts of this case are far, far on the litigation fundamental objective end of that spectrum. And so kind of analyzing it in that context. And just to maybe to pin down the the objective of Robert McCoy here is is what is to maintain his innocence and and notwithstanding what uh, Mr. English seemed to think was pretty insurmountable evidence to, to nonetheless sort of roll the dice and hope 
that he he he, he does gain acquittal? That's the objective that that he has in mind. I mean, I, I can't speak for what was in Mr. McCoy's mind at that time. What we know unequivocally, because he did it many times, repeatedly and consistently during the representation during trial, is his one of those objectives was not to admit guilt. <laughs> I and mean, it's as fundamental as that. Uh, he said it many times. He said it in front of the judge. He said it in front of the jury. And so um, that part is pretty much not in dispute, that there was an express desire not to admit guilt. And now I think where the argument on the other side comes in, it goes to strategy, it goes to um, likelihood of success. You hear a lot of discussion about that, right? Um, Even in your framing, you talked a little bit about, well, but if that's not a likely scenario, um, is that a reasonable objective? Um, You know, I think given all the facts in this case, it was a clear and express objective. And... um, when that's the case, and sometimes you, you don't get that, but when you have such a clear and repeated statement of fundamental interest in, in maintaining innocence, um, our brief um, and uh, several briefs actually said when it's that clear, you really don't have room to say, well, we think another strategy is better. Uh, or, I mean, you can you can advocate it to your client, but you can't just override it. And that's what happened here. I actually think one of the clarifying parts came from Justice Kagan during the oral argument. You know, when there was some discussion about tactics versus objective, she actually pointed out once you have such a clear expression of an objective, I do not want to admit guilt, then you're almost not in the tactic versus objective landscape anymore. You are at client objective versus attorney objective. And that goes to the point that you were raising. It's very possible that Mr. English fully and genuinely believed that Mr. McCoy's objective of maintaining innocence wasn't rational and wasn't likely to be successful. But what he did was he overrode it and he supplanted it with his own objective, which was the best case scenario was to avoid the death penalty. And and I think she clarified that when you have an express objective, as you do in this case, it really is whose objective should win in that case. Um, and as you can tell from our brief, we believe that given the nature of the assistive relationship between attorney and client, it's the client's fundamental objective that, that needs to prevail. Okay. As, as you described it, you could, you could view um, this this idea that we're talking about on a spectrum where on one end you have uh, fundamental choices pretty squarely within the sole purview of the defendant, things like either admitting guilt or, or not. Um, and then maybe on the, the opposite end, you have very technical legal choices like certain objections um, a lawyer might raise, like hearsay objections. And, and, and in those instances, you wouldn't expect the lawyer to defer to what the defendant wants to do. Um, but but in the middle, there are some 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 closer calls, like an attorney advising his client to, to opt for a self defense um, defense or um, you know plead insanity, and in so doing, you sort of admit to having done the crime. Um, so those closer calls are, are not this, but but they were focused on at at oral argument in the Supreme Court, um, where the justices did seem to to seem to agree that this was a, you know, 
this particular choice was not near that that gray area, but yet they, they really wanted to focus on the gray area because the rule they all announce um, will be cited in, in briefs brought by folks that, that do have cases in, in that gray area. I guess, what are your thoughts on that balance? You know, do you think the court should really focus on just the facts here, or how kind is it do you think they need to be of, of those closer calls? I think that definitely all of the justices were wrestling with if we move away from this factual line, what is the line that we might draw? Uh, in particular, Justice Breyer, um, as I think he does in a lot of criminal cases, he kept an eye on what what should we be telling uh, prosecutors, public defenders, uh, criminal defense attorneys on the ground um, on a on a practical in a practical way? What guidance are they to take from us um, if we were to draw a line in the middle? So I. I think that you should get um, a little bit more consensus that these facts aren't close to that line. But you're right. I think the majority, in fact, of the oral argument was focused on in that gray area. How do you draw that line? Uh, I do think this is a a tricky case. Uh, I mean, I don't think these facts are a tricky case, but it is a tricky issue because the practice of law (laughs) incorporates a lot of different factors and attorneys are making judgment calls at any given point and and so I do think that once you move into the gray area it does get a little trickier I think a couple of the things that I think about when it's not a hard and fast rule in this gray area but a couple of the factors or the sliding scales that I keep in mind for the gray area are first what is the decision, can we reasonably expect the client, a lay client, to have a viewpoint of that decision? And then secondly, is the decision fundamental or substantive to the client's defense? So those are the two factors. If I'm just thinking about this as a lay person, those are two things that I think about when I try to determine, is it closer to the fundamental objective end or is it more like a, a minor um, legal strategy issue. Um, and I, I'm happy to unpack both of those, but those are two factors that you can see play out in how both sides were arguing, is this an important case? Is it not an important case? If I minimized the attorney judgment, uh, are you more comfortable with overriding express wishes? wishes? Um, what if the person isn't rational? Um, and that goes to the reasonable expectation point that I was raising. So um, those are the two of the big factors, I think, when people are thinking about where to draw the line um, that you, you would think about the context of a case. Sure. Maybe if you would, do you think you could run one of those closer calls through that, that sort of framework? If, for example, the an attorney wants to, to claim self-defense, but the, the defendant wants to maintain his his innocence and, and the attorney nonetheless goes ahead and puts on a self-defense um, argument, thereby admitting the client did commit the act. Um, how, how would that fit into the, the test you sort of lay out? It's interesting. When I talked with um, a colleague of mine who is a former uh, public defender, he talked a little bit about the difference between facts and the law. And so we started talking about, well, what if it's not, should you admit guilt or not? What if it's, um, let's say it's a crime that requires the crossing of state borders, and the fact 
uh, and the question relates to should we admit that you in fact cross state borders if the client says i just didn't do it i know where i was that's basic fact i i don't think that i crossed that line and i don't want you to say that i crossed that line even if other elements might be required other legal elements might be required in order to maintain a conviction my colleague took the view that look unless <laughs> you were there and you saw the person and um do that i mean if there's just any possibility that this person is permitted to to make this statement once you are instructed that this is the basic fact as as the client um understands it he thought it would be very very difficult to override and tell tell a court hey notwithstanding what my client has just told you you should disbelieve him about this fact um whereas i think there was more gray area if the question related to how do you object to a, a witness something that feels more within kind of a legal judgment um type of decision uh but i actually found that illuminating cuz um he practiced criminal law for a long time and he really felt quite a bit of deference to as to important factual matters even if you don't think it's likely or or is going to be a winning strategy your job at most is to convince the client not to force you to pursue that strategy but the idea of completely overriding a client's version of facts seem pretty anathema to him so uh, th- that is one way of thinking about if you go down these different hypotheticals you know what are you basically forcing your client to admit as a factual or really important substantial matter in your view when this chain of events occurs where a defendant wants to maintain innocence as he just has not committed the crimes in the lawyer tells the jury he has a, exactly what piece of the 6th amendment um, has been violated is it the the right to trial uh, part the right to counsel and on that latter point you can you talk about the the difference between you know, what the the importance of taking this outside of the ineffective, ineffective um, assistance of, of counsel um, piece of the Sixth Amendment? Because as as we sort of talked about, uh, this may have been the the best move to to try and save Robert McCoy's life, and so the argument could and, and certainly was made that this can't be an ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel since it was his best shot to avoid the death penalty. Sure. So. I think this originates from the Sixth Amendment, um, and over time, uh, the Sixth Amendment, uh, the assistance of counsel piece that you identified, that has been interpreted in case law to include various components, um, and that if the nature of the violation is so structural, um, and it affects a structural deprivation of even having counsel, um, that you actually don't need to go through the Strickland ineffective assistance of counsel prejudice analysis that regardless of what you want to argue the consequences of the deprivation are, the the deprivation is so central to the Sixth Amendment constitutional violation that you you just don't need to engage in the ineffective assistance of counsel analysis, which is a separate one. So yes to Sixth Amendment, yes to the assistance of counsel piece, and over time, um, that has been interpreted to include the right to a personal defense. Um, that's the master ultimate authority 
analysis that I talked about. It includes the right to decide whether to admit guilt. It includes the right to testify in uh, one's own defense. Um, and it includes a right to subject the prosecution to uh, adversarial testing. Um, and so there's there's a clump of rights that are that that originate from that assistance of counsel piece. Um, what was interesting from the oral argument was Justice Ginsburg also touched on the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. And here, if what Mr. English did was effectively plead guilty against <laughs> um, Mr. Mr. McCoy's wishes, why isn't that akin to kind of a forced admission, uh, or at least a violation of the right to not admit guilt? Um, I, I think most of the briefing focuses on the Sixth Amendment, but I thought that was an interesting additional layer. That that part of the Sixth Amendment doctrine that's, that, that built up the the fact that the defendant controls whether or not to to plead guilty. Um, I, I think it's you know sort of framed that way in, in the 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 state of trial. Where, where the plea is given, so that obviously precedes um, the the part of the criminal procedure where English's admission occurred here. But but I take it that uh, as you, as you argue in your brief, there there can't really be much difference between admitting at the the plea stage, pleading guilty when your client doesn't want to, and and, and doing this uh, right. I, I think Justice Kennedy uh, drilled that home to it an argument that the two are, are virtually the same. I agree, and and I think this was. You probably remember the discussion between counsel for the state of Louisiana, where she was making the argument that well, a big difference is that a trial has happened. So that's the difference between just plea, pleading guilty at the plea stage, and allowing a full trial to happen. But I think that goes to the structural problem. Does the trial really matter when <laughs> your uh, the counsel for, from whom you're supposed to get assistance says an oral argument, oh, he did it. <laughs> when you are examining your own client, you undermine your client's alibi. Uh, and then in closing argument in front of the jury, you say, I told you he did it. And I'm relieving the prosecution of the burden of proving that he engaged in the actus reus. I mean, that is a pretty strong statement in a closing statement. And so really, is there a real trial and was there real assistance of counsel when the the counsel has engaged in such such affirmative conduct in front of not only the judge, but in front of a jury? Um, to me, in that case, it's just a, it, it doesn't approach what you would expect to happen in a trial where there's adversarial testing and you have counsel trying to make your case versus the, the prosecution's. It, it, it was a, a very different circumstance and you would expect an effective trial to be. Could you explain to me the, the narrow rule that the lawyer arguing on behalf of Louisiana, Elizabeth Murrell, proposed the court adopt that would, um, I think, uh, allow, not compel, but allow um, uh, English to, to do what he did in this case? I think that was actually a really savvy start by, I believe it was the Solicitor General. Ms. Merle is the Solicitor General of the state of Louisiana. Um, the state of Louisiana began their presentation at the Supreme Court by 
somewhat drifting from their briefing, to be honest. I think in their briefing, they took a more aggressive position about mm. how ethical rules, for example, require Mr. English to have done what he did. But at the start of the oral argument, um, counsel took the position, well, under certain circumstances, somebody in Mr. English's, Mr. English's position basically had no choice but to do this and you are not required to give a new trial when really it's just so futile if what your client is asking you to do is so futile and might even require you to suborn perjury, you can override in that circumstance. And of course, there are a lot of factual assumptions in that hypothetical. Uh, it's not clear to me that that hypothetical is exactly what happened here. But I thought it was a savvy move to try to focus the justices on a narrower exception because the questioning of Mr. McCoy's Supreme Court counsel really focused on, well, where do we draw the line? So the state of Louisiana started with, well, why don't you draw the line here and immediately face questions about how the actual facts of the case weren't anywhere close to the line. But as I was kind of listening and going back over the briefing, you know, the one thing that isn't discussed in the oral argument very much, um, there is somewhat in the state of Louisiana's position an inconsistent or double standard for what rationality of a client looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about this because on the one hand, the state of Louisiana um, you know, was arguing, look, Mr. McCoy, through all of his conduct, was not to be trusted. He was not, tr he should not have been trusted to be rational enough to assert his basic interest in not admitting guilt. But on the flip side, when there was that interesting back and forth with Chief Justice Roberts and Chief uh, and Justice Kagan, where they were asking him, but what if Mr. McCoy had been a little bit more rational and had explained himself in a clear way to Mr. English, do you think that Mr. English could have still overridden that stated objective? Mm. And the state of Louisiana actually said, well, no, in that case, probably you would have a violation. Mm. And so to me, there's a little bit of a double standard in terms of when we expect uh, criminal defendants to be rational enough for us to trust them. We don't <laughs> trust Mr. McCoy to be rational enough to assert his interest in basically not admitting guilt, but then we expect him to be rational enough to engage in this sophisticated legal argument with Mr. English and persuade him right? Yeah. To come over to his side of the strategy. And so to me, uh, that was something that I've actually been wrestling with quite a bit. It, it, this, didn't, this comparison didn't come up a lot in the oral argument, but it's something that I, I think feels wrong to me. I think the more consistent position would be to say, look, if you have lay people who are not trained like lawyers, you can't expect them to voice basic objectives like just, I didn't do that. Please don't say I did that because I didn't do that. But past fairly basic objectives and uh, statements of interest, then you do wonder, well, was Mr. McCoy sophisticated enough to argue Mr. English over to his side? What, you know, what was reasonable to expect him to do in that case? I, I think it's a little bit more um, defensible to expect Mr. McCoy to have enough rationality to state his interest, even if he didn't have the ability to convince Mr. English mm -hmm. <laughs> to believe him. So that, that's something I actually think is really interesting that hasn't 
been focused on in uh, either the briefing or the um, the oral argument. But it, it does go to what I think is an unfairness that I think a lot of lay people would focus on. Like I, there are lots of things I'm happy to trust my lawyer on, and I'll do my best to argue with my lawyer. But really, I, he or she should listen to me when I say I don't want to admit guilt. Um, both sides definitely did field pretty challenging uh, questions from the justices. One uh, issued from Justice Ginsburg to to Mr. Waxman and uh, posed the the question as to just what Mr. English should have been expected to do if you know in fact this case was a pretty futile one if the alibi was paper thin if you know it's almost a fait accompli that McCoy would be found guilty. Um, and there's just really no ev- evidence that English could muster. What uh, what, in your view, should he have done? It's always very difficult to tell somebody after the fact in a very difficult capital case that it was so clear um, what would have happened. I think one of the things that you got a strong sense of from the oral argument, from the questioning of both sides, is there was quite a bit of sympathy for the unusual position that Mr. English had been put in. Um, so I do think that there was an acknowledgement that trial counsel was in a difficult position. I also think just to set up how you could approach this differently, Mr. McCoy's counsel at the Supreme Court, Mr. Waxman, did draw a really hard distinction between affirmatively stating guilt versus passively using other strategies and tactics. And so I think that could be a way that the Supreme Court um, – recognizes that the facts of these cases are really just unusual because Mr. English, it's not just that he had another strategy and then pursued it instead, is that he did the opposite of what his client told him that he wanted to do. So again, opening statement in direct examinations and in closing statement really did the opposite of what Mr. McCoy wanted to do and in fact affirmatively stated guilt. If you didn't do that, um, and I think if you talk to different criminal and capital counsel, they'll they'll have slightly different strategies about that. But, you know, the first thing that you would do is you'd put the government to its test. Um, There are ways that you just, through rigorous cross-examination, you emphasize the burden on the government to prove its case, and um, you emphasize um, reasonable doubt. And this is a point that is made not only in our amicus brief, but in the amicus brief submitted by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. That is what you do when you have a very difficult capital case. You have to put the government to its proof. Um, I think another thing that you could do is do a rigorous uh, mitigation strategy at the penalty phase. And one of the places where I think you could say that Mr. English fell a little short is he despite claiming that he was pursuing the strategy to save Mr. McCoy's life and that he thought it just wasn't credible and and really we should build sympathy for Mr. McCoy, he didn't put on any mitigation witnesses. I think the only person that came up was a psychologist where that was actually botched. He prompted the psychologist to admit that Mr. McCoy was actually competent and could tell right and wrong when he engaged in the in the alleged murders. So it's not clear to me that that mitigation that sounded like that could have happened a little bit better. Um, and then kind of really big picture, I think the third thing is 
it goes to the heart of what we're trying to say in the ABA brief is you actually have to work really hard to improve the relationship with your client. I mean, when when there was a divergence here between Mr. McCoy and what he wanted and what Mr. English thought was the best strategy, clearly there was a fraying of the relationship over time. And I think if you talk to many capital counsel, they spend a tremendous amount of time making sure that their clients are on board with the strategy of, in my book, the best case and really the only reasonable objective here for you is to avoid the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And if that is true, and, and, and Mr. English felt very strongly about it, he still has an ethical obligation to try to get Mr. McCoy to assent to that. And what happened was the opposite. I don't know to what extent he he tried to bring Mr. McCoy over to that strategy, but the point is he didn't. And Mr. McCoy repeatedly said, this is more important to me. Maintaining that I did not kill my relatives is very important to me. And there, um, if you can't improve the relationship, then you are bound not to override the express interests of your client. As you said, your, your brief is on behalf of, of the ABA. Uh, one of the, the arguments or themes that seems to come up on, on the other side is that um, you know what the, the court, if it requires Mr. English to put on the defense his client wants, um, the court is asking him to do, um, takes him over sort of ethical boundaries and, and would force him to violate ethical rules because he would be uh, essentially, you know, putting on, you know, stipulating that his client was guilty, he'd be putting on sort of a, a farce of a defense, one that might violate his, you know, for example, duty of candor to the court. Um, as you describe it, though, it sounds like you don't believe that Mr. English would tread too near any ethical boundaries by by doing the things that you've described per, you know, uh, at least the ABA's uh, rules. I don't think so, not given the facts of this case. I mean, here are the two scenarios that we would have to imagine. In the case of an ineffective assistance claim, a court would have to believe that Mr. English should have overridden Mr. McCoy's expressed wish to con- contest guilt. And and that, for example, one of the options is to allow Mr. McCoy to just be on the stand and present his alibi, not undermine it, but also not focus on it, just focus on other aspects of your defense. And if Mr. English had done that, it's hard for me to imagine that on this record, a court would have found ineffective assistance of counsel because one, there's a very clear record of what Mr. McCoy's stated interest was. And two, it's not like Mr. English just fell down on the job or was actively assisting an alibi that he knew to be wrong. He was just emphasizing other parts. I I just have a hard time imagining that a court would fault Mr. English in that circumstance. As for an ethics board, I I really can't imagine that an ethics board would fault Mr. English for respecting a fundamental state of desire to contest guilt. So I don't think either of those cases uh, was likely. And I think, I mean, you have to make the slippery slope argument, right? Um, The state of Louisiana has to worry. Um, well, what does this mean for other ineffective assistance of counsel claims? But I, I don't think that means that Mr. English was... Uh, in a very risky position, given these facts. Um, start to wrap up here. I, we, we talked about it some that that the difference between trial strategy and, and trial objectives, um, you know, is is discrete enough that 
that you can you know say they are two separate categories but we also said the the closer calls exist where those two sort of meet i guess just in in your view how clear is the line be- between the two and 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 how much does it, does it matter considering in this case i guess um this situation is pretty clearly as as you would describe it in, in the objective category i don't think of them as boxes so much as a spectrum um and then there is a line probably on each end of the spectrum where if you make it past that line, it, it feels clear. But I do think there is a gray area. And I think that that's exactly what the justices are wrestling with, that there is a vast gray area in the middle. So I don't think it's a binary choice. And um, I think that's recognition of the fact that attorneys do have to make judgment calls, but also that at some point an attorney's judgment call cannot involve the supplanting of a client's value judgments. I mean, Mr. McCoy, whether or not we as trained lawyers would have pursued his alibi, I mean, he had, again, a reasonable expectation that he could say, no, no, this is what I think happened. I I don't want to admit that. Um, And so he he was, once he did that, he drew his own line. And I I think it was um, incumbent upon Mr. English not to, to violate that wish in that case. Okay, um, last one, kind of overall, how do you think the the arguments when it seems like the prevailing wisdom is that the court will agree that this is a constitutional violation, um, but it seems a bit up in the air at this moment, just what the opinion will look like, if it's a, a pretty narrow one trying to really cabin off extreme situations like the ones here, or if we'll, it'll treat the, kind of the, the whole spectrum of potential claims to you know, with, with future appeals in mind. I agree. I'm actually very interested to see. I I think that you are likely to get at least a majority on the specific facts of this case on a narrower ruling in terms of whether Mr. McCoy suffered a violation. I think it's likely that the facts are so bad that it will rise to the level of a constitutional structural Sixth Amendment violation. And the question for me is, um, depending on the different justices, whether they will write how they would draw the line or please use the following factors when you're trying to decide whether or not to override your client's wishes. And you could tell based on which justices were asking questions of which sides that there were different starting presumptions. I think that some of the justices who were questioning Mr. Waxman were really focused on the fact of we can't open the floodgates to post hoc second guessing of trial strategy. And so for the justices that are worried about that as a slippery slope, they might try to write opinions that say the vast majority of trial decisions um, fall within the purview of attorney litigation strategy and, and shouldn't be a ready means to second-guess a trial. But if you have justices who are focused more on, say, the inherent dignity and autonomy of a client to direct basic um, litigation objectives, I think you might have people writing, well, once you have expressed stated objectives or key elements or facts in a case, you can't override them. You might be able to pursue 
or emphasize different things in a case, but just to flatly override them like Mr. English did here uh, and in such a public way in front of a jury, that's no bueno, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm actually really curious to see. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in this case to see slightly different guidance in terms of the gray area. And so maybe this is one where you get different opinions or, or a plurality on where the lines are. Um, but hopefully, um, at least from our perspective, um, Mr. McCoy will be able to prove at the very least that he had a structural violation. Okay. Well, we'll get a chance to find out here soon enough when the ruling in McCoy versus Louisiana comes, comes down. But for now, we'll leave it there. Albert Young, from Boyd, Schiller, and Flexner. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time and chatting about this case with us. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And with that, our program for February 23rd, 2018 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. It is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed it. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.